So sincerely welcome everyone. Uh, this is um, a three-class series on anger. And I hope it's a topic that uh, everyone can relate to. I don't think there are too many people outside uh, of this particular topic. I uh, am particularly interested uh, in having this anger class during the Christmas season. <laughs> doesn't uh, quite fit in most people's understanding of what Christmas is about, but maybe we can remedy that a little bit. It's actually hard to think of where anger fits in the holidays. It uh, doesn't quite, doesn't quite uh, fit around Easter, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, I don't know, maybe uh, President's Day. <laughs> or Halloween. Uh, but it's because we have a certain way of picturing uh, anger and where it fits in the continuum of things that it's one of the reasons that I think we feel like it's such an outside emotion. It's, su it's, such, a, it's such a alien emotion. One that no one that I know of is completely comfortable with. And certainly um, when there is that sort of discomfort um, a good, sincere meditator will turn towards it, not away from it. And so what we're going to be doing in the next weeks here together is to bring it front and center. Let's just check this thing out. What's going on here? Uh, and really give it the sort of scrutiny that it deserves. <clears throat> there are also... I think, some really good homework assignments. And they get better. And so I would ask your uh, involvement in these homework assignments and with some, with some degree of um, focus uh, for the week intervening, intervening the next meeting. And the way I've sort of structured this is that uh, the first week, this week, will be just sort of a, uh, a brushstroke of, of anger. What is anger about? What, is it, what does it look like? And then next week, we're going to talk about some of the um, antecedents. What, it, what is it that, uh, what belief systems, what uh, perceptions do we have that lead to this kind of anger? And then the last weekend, we'll look at it uh, in terms of a spiritual understanding of its emptiness and bring some of its um, spiritual qualities so that we can use its energy but not get caught up in the violence of the activity. <coughs> so this week, it's a sort of just the tapestry of anger itself. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What, what's driving this thing? So I'd like to just think of your own, how you relate to a few words such as um, rage or hatred or violence, especially in relationship to your persona as a meditator. To get some sense of where that sits with you as a meditator. 
or as a spiritual being, however you want to define that. And perhaps in what you're trying to become in terms of your spiritual lives. So the effort around being good, for instance. And where does that violence, rage, where does that sit with you? How does that sit with you in terms of what you are trying or seeking to become from your spiritual practice? I think uh, if we look at anger, we see that um, most of us uh, have sort of equated anger to be uh, equal to either pain or abandonment. And we learn our strategies, our lessons about anger from our childhood, mostly. When my father was angry at me, it usually meant some sort of pain that was going to be inflicted on me in terms of punishment or physical <coughs> harm. And when I was angry, I was usually sent away to my room. So there was a sense of abandonment or being cut off from the rest of the family. And when my mother was angry, she would withdraw. Again, abandonment or isolation. And I think that my particular family wasn't that unique in how it is that we dealt with our anger. And it became increasingly understood as I grew up that anger, the presence of anger, somehow meant that I was either going to be hurt or left alone. Please bring your own history into this dialogue, monologue. So part of what anger or the feelings of anger when they arise in me is that there's a fear. Fear arises along with anger. I know that something's going to happen. And that anticipation of what will happen in terms of anger brings, brings anger, allows anger to have that same conditioning so that we don't, we, even though our parents aren't around anymore, the conditioning has rubbed off to the very emotional state itself. So that the very fact of having anger means something's going to happen here. Alarm. Alarm. Fear. Isolation. Loneliness. And fear, of course, is what keeps us fleeing from anger, away from anger. The body learned to avoid anger because it may well get punished physically. So there's a certain body conditioning to run away itself in the cells of the body. The mind learned to shut it out and to repress it. Can't express it or because it wasn't an acceptable emotion in this family system. And so we've learned from having been born and bred in that kind of environment 
uh, a very learned condition response in terms of our anger. And it is because it has that kind of fear response that we carry it around with us. Let's look at road rage. <laughs> the nicest person can be in that car. I'll tell you a story of road rage. I was down in Texas just after my monkhood. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was uh, driving uh, down the freeways of Houston and a man was driving in his car alongside of me and just came into my lane right like that. And I, was, I, I just reacted and went over to the next lane, but I didn't have time to even check whether that lane had any cars in it or not. And just luckily, there weren't any cars in that lane. And the guy was like parallel to my window. So being a good monk, I looked at him and went, <laughs> and he started following me. Now we're in Texas. We're not in Seattle. <laughs> and he followed me for miles on the freeway. And finally I thought, I'm, well, I'm just going home. So all the way through the neighborhoods of Houston, he tailgated me. Finally, I pulled over, and he got out of his truck. And he comes up to the car. I had the window cracked about that far. <laughs> and he said, uh, boy, I don't know where you're from, but we shoot people for doing that to each other down here. Well, he didn't shoot me. But it certainly taught me a lesson about how people respond out of anger, both from myself and from the contagiousness of anger, how you can actually pass that on, and how a situation can become embroiled in a predicament that's completely out of control very, very quickly, just like that. <coughs> And if it had been just a slightly different thing, I mean, there could have been violence in there very easily. Over what? Nobody was hurt. But over nothing. I mean, if we, and we, uh, I used to read in the paper quite often down there, and it happens up here as well, of people just um, having uh, some kind of mix-up in their cars and getting out and having a, a fight, I remember down there one time people drew out their guns and shot. One guy shot and killed somebody over that sort of thing. Over what? You see, it doesn't have anything to do with the seriousness of the situation. It gets blown out. All of a sudden it's, all of a sudden it just, it becomes the state itself. It's no longer what precipitated that state. It's the state that acts. And it's no longer rationally connected with the situation. And it's because I believe that we have such an unsettled presence with anger. We have such an unsettled ability to 
hold anger in our lives that it follows us. And all of the uh, permutations of anger that we carry with us, like sarcasm, like cynicism, like judgment, like backbiting and put-downs. Those are permutations. Those are, those are acknowledgments that anger is a psychic posture out of which we hold and look and perceive. I think that's very interesting. I think it's real interesting to, to look at our consciousness and to see where anger is in our everyday expression and forms and how we look out on, onto the world. And some of us carry it. Carry it with, it just, we just carry it. It's almost imbued in the way we look upon the world. It's become a strategy for our life. It's become the way we defend aggressively going towards. It becomes so enmeshed in how we look on life that we can't even see that we're in it. Like fish trying to see water. And other people can usually feel it in us. You know, you get a sense of that sharpness. You get a sense of that, that holding, that kind of, you can just feel the tightness. For some of us, because we have lived with it so long, that it becomes, as I mentioned, a strategy for survival. It's how we cope with our lives in terms of aggression and attacking and snapping. And in some ways, there's a feeling of being, um, that anger is, um, allows us to somehow be in control. I think there is a fear in some of us that if we, that it's only through anger that we can empower ourselves that we don't have the courage to do the same things that we feel we deserve without the anger expressing itself is that not so for many people and so it becomes a lifestyle because in some ways we feel like we're in control in a perverted way through being angry. The world at least responds to me and I feel like a victim if I don't <coughs> flex my anger. I feel impotent, out of control. And somehow in our righteousness, which is really what anger is all about we we feel that the earth and the world is confirming us somehow you see so we actually encourage it even as we are afraid of it And of course, as I mentioned, anger is a contagious 
mind state. There are many mind states that are contagious, but anger is one that is most obvious, I think. And we have had contact anger. I know many of you have felt that before, where you're around somebody and they snap at you, and all of a sudden it puts you in the same mood as that person who snapped at you. And it just ruins your day. And you carry that through. And what happened there, you see? There was no awareness there. And that moment of transmission of anger, we took it on. And usually we feel judged somehow, or we feel blamed. And from that perception, we are, again, we feel antagonistic towards that. Well, how could they? But we're not, there was no awareness there. There was no awareness of how we picked it up. It was a free-floating virus that we just inhaled. And we do this um, often from our moods, because our moods color uh, the perceptual things that we see. They actually color what we see. So we may be in a bad mood, and we are walking down the street, and a friend or an acquaintance will pass us and say, oh, hello, Rodney, how are you doing today? And we will dismiss the person, or we'll say, what's it to you, or something cheerful like that, (laughs) or something. And we then rationalize what we've just done to the world by saying, oh, that person deserves it anyway. They're always, you see? Because in our righteousness, that's what we see. That's what we see. Those are the glasses from which we view. And then later, as the anger wanes a little bit within our consciousness, we go, oh, wow. Then the guilt and the shame. And the guilt and the shame is self-anger. You see, it's self-abuse. It's coming back again. And now, instead of striking outward, we're striking inward. And therefore, anger hasn't diminished. We've just changed its subject. No longer do we go outward with it. We go back in ourselves. And when we hold the posture of anger, that's how we swing back and forth back and forth. And someone who carries a lot of anger in them has a lot of guilt and shame. This is a cheerful... (laughs) 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 We're supposed to be merry at Christmas. (laughs) It's a very serious subject, but I hope that we can breed some sense of humor and lightness into it, and as we go along here, I certainly hope we will. So anger is a self-confirming view. It's real important, I think, to understand why it's so entrenched, why it is such a difficult uh, perception to let go of. Because a view is a specific description of events from the point of view of self. It's how you've interpreted what went on. 
And so when you interpret something, when you see it, even as slanted from your perception, then it becomes entrenched in a way that is much firmer than if somebody had told you something because you've seen it yourself. And the other thing that happens, and this is a really important aspect of anger, is that usually in anger there's been some deep degree of concern that you have, some caring that we have that has been trampled on, that has been invaded. And so the essence of some anger is love. The essence of some anger is something we believe very strongly in. We care about it. And in this culture, one of the things that we have ideas of, that we care a lot about, is fairness. And that is a source of an enormous amount of anger because we each interpret what fairness means. Here's a story of fairness. <laughs> I was standing in line in Heathrow Airport in London buying a ticket to get to Asia where I was going to go ordain as a monk on, I can't remember the name of airlines, but it's the Bangladesh Airlines. It starts with a B, but I can't remember. And I was standing there. And I got to the airport like two and a half hours early, and you're supposed to get there two hours early. So I had plenty of time. And I was standing there, and I stood there and stood there waiting in line to purchase this ticket. Stood there and stood there. And I wasn't getting any closer to the counter. And I sort of woke up out of my, uh, my daydreaming. And I started noticing that Bangladeshians were crowding in a line. One would leave and another one would come in. Nobody was getting at the end of the line except the Westerner. <laughs> and I got outraged because I had been there now uh, well, uh, about 45 minutes or an hour, I had moved up at all, and now the, the whole ticket process was getting a little cramped with time as you go through customs and all of that sort of thing. And here was my idea of fairness. But it wasn't the Bangladeshian idea of fairness. Bangladeshian? <laughs> <laughs> And I just, and when I, I mean, I finally got, you know, cleared all out, and I got up there, and I, in the, uh, there was a Westerner, uh, a Londoner, in, in a Brit, British woman who was uh, taking the tickets, and I said, you know, um, I've been waiting that line a long time, and people were crowding in, and, you know, I was trying to have her agree with me that I was being abused. <laughs> And she said, oh, that, that's just the way they are. They don't hold on to that same idea of fairness that you have. It's interesting, isn't it? I thought that was God sent. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that something that is just inherent in everybody, you see? 
No. <laughs> they answered, you want to check it out? You want to know how it's not? Because death doesn't operate that way. If it were a truth of life, then death would operate that way. Death doesn't take the criminal before the honest man or woman. Death doesn't necessarily take the elderly before the child. How does, what does that do to our ideas of fairness? What does that do to our ideas of a human being in this world? And without fairness, what happens to our sense of control? I mean, if it's not fair, you see? These are very, very deeply held beliefs in us. And they're culturally induced. People shouldn't treat us this way. I'm out on that road, somebody shouldn't go towards me. That's not fair. It's like the Seattle football game yesterday. <laughs> a guy didn't make a touchdown. And he cheated. He moved the ball over the goal line, even when it wasn't there. Now, that's not fair. <laughs> but fairness is an idea. It's not from the heart. Fairness isolates us. It doesn't connect us because it's an idea. And we'll go much more into this concept of fairness next week because it's one of the kernel issues of where our anger comes from. And it's the basis on our homework. So please, take this homework seriously. <clears throat> we feel we're out of control when the rules are broken. And anger, because of its limitation of view, a view is one person's eyes, one person's vantage point in a description of an event. And I've told the story before, but uh, my father, when there were three boys, there were actually four boys, my younger brother, and a, and a girl in our family, and we were always getting in angry at each other. And we, just kids, you know, having fights and things. But um, he did something that, um, sometimes he would do something that was very uh, unusual. He would, uh, I would be perhaps angry at my older brother, David. And we would be going at it. And my father would come in and say, okay, uh, Rodney, I want you to tell me what happened from David's point of view. And David, I want you to tell me what happened from Rodney's point of view. And I want you to convince me that that point of view is right. Now that's an interesting one. <laughs> because your view, you're, you're self-righteously in your view and to take on the other point of view. And often our punishment was determined on how well we convinced him. <laughs> so anger is an indication of a certain lack of clarity. Our clarity is being blocked here. 
And yet there is something that is very important, we're very concerned about. See, there's the heart there, but, but we're not seeing the whole picture. And we're not seeing, the, the issue is, um, becomes so predominant in our mind, the righteousness of the issue, that it blocks our clarity. And, but there is some kind of focused energy needed for involvement in the world. And that anger contains a, a really um, focused energy that if we could just break through the limitation of that clarity, we could use that energy to be positively involved in the world. See, anger has positive qualities to it. The energy that it arouses in you is very, you know, you're right there. <laughs> I wish meditators were. <laughs> and so if we could somehow unlock that view and establish clarity and allow that energy to move forward within clarity, then we could use anger in a way that was very conducive to a to positive, to a positive result. So the energy needs to be recovered but redirected back into the caring in some way. Now, it's interesting because um, those of us uh, who feel as if we're on a spiritual path, and I hope most of us in this room do, We sometimes, and if, if we're particularly uh, drawn to the Buddhist tradition, we may um, feel sometimes like uh, Buddhist diplomats, where we have to always act gently in life uh, and uh, not getting, uh, letting our anger, uh, you know. So we sort of go through the living process, sort of um, making a statement of ourselves as being Buddhist practitioners and what we have that because the the gentle smile of the Buddha I look behind me but he's not there any <laughs> is is always pr- prevalent you know in in this tradition and so where does our anger fit in that I, I'm working towards something higher am I not something more noble ennobling than anger hopefully. And so this leads or can lead to a certain uh, dysfunctional theology where we uh, suppress our anger. And um, anything but allowing that anger to result. And some of us wonder why it's so difficult to keep our attention on our breath. Sometimes it's because daydreaming is a way to suppress that anger. That if I'm off, I don't have to face what it is I'm feeling. And sleepiness can be another way. Just drowsiness and heaviness and sluggishness of mind. So to, to look and to see if anger is behind that or if there is some irritation that's going on. Addictions are also a way of coping with anger. Addictions, they cloud the mind or numb ourselves out from having to feel that which is so scary for us to perceive. Workaholics is a form of addiction. So to summarize tonight's lecture, P. 
people really have one of two problems with anger. Either there is an indulgence in the expression of it, spilling it out in therapeutic obsession, primal screaming it away, somehow feeling that that empowers me with a sense of control in my anger. And there's a kind of romanticism that many therapists give that you are you know, being in touch with yourself when you're showing your anger. I, I worked uh, as a medic in the army in 1970. And I worked in, uh, I was a, um, worked in uh, the hospital and uh, in the office was a psychiatrist. And uh, <clears throat> his wife would come in periodically about every other day and just scream and yell and throw things <laughs> in some kind of a display that uh, wasn't uh, very, was very unsettling. And the psychiatrist, I would go back in and talk to the psychiatrist and say, what, you know, I mean, you can't pretend it wasn't happening. <laughs> and he'd say, oh, she's just getting in touch with her feelings. <laughs> it's like if you see somebody hurting someone you don't say oh great they're in touch with their feelings <laughs> somebody's beating up on somebody or shooting somebody and acting out their anger do you if, they're, if somebody's feeling guilty and has a lot of self anger and hurt you don't say oh that's wonderful I mean where does that come from getting in touch with their feelings is that kind of display of violence. So we have to be careful of, of what we mean by getting in touch with our feelings. Certainly getting in touch with our feelings is part of the meditation process. So that's one of the problems that we face. And then of course the other one is that we're afraid and push the emotion away entirely. We try to eradicate it from our lives completely. And many Buddhists are very clever. Many meditators are very clever in how they do this. I'll watch it. Hmm. But it's with the expectation that we're keeping it at arm's length, away from ourselves. That the mindfulness isn't an intimate one, but a distant one. With the expectation of waiting it out. I'll wait this one out. <laughs> And so our, how we watch, how we let that mind state in, how we let it approach us, is as important as seeing it itself. And the question that this class, these classes I hope will bring forth is, what's the middle way? between all of that. Can we understand anger? Can we understand it? So that it has no way to shake me or move me. That it's not distant or remote because it's a part of my aliveness. And as a meditator I am very interested in my aliveness and bringing that back into my heart. 
to regain access to my own vitality in all aspects of myself. So it's not to discard it. It's not to romanticize it and play it out, to scream it away. And to understand the value of anger, that it's not that there's a limitation if we get caught up in this cycle of activities that come out of anger that start with irritation and then annoyance and then anger and then rage and then violence. Is there some way for us to hold that without moving into the actions that it seems to indicate? Is there a way? Is there a way to balance the anger with our awareness so that it doesn't control? And some of us have practiced metta meditation because we're so afraid of the anger and its effect on us and it's so, we're so reactive to it that we have to balance out that reactivity with some loving kindness and that's a good tool to use. But that's not insight. That's not understanding. It's a tool and it's a helpful one and I encourage people who need that tool to use it. But ultimately we have to understand it And so that's where we're headed in the next couple of classes, is to take this emotion in. And by God, we're going to understand it. With the focus and the activity and the energy of the anger, but without the the closed perception. And we can bring that energy to the anger itself. Can we sit for a minute or two?